2: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack, which is about as clickbaity as clickbait can be, Lockie, isn't it? How else do you attract attention?
3: Uh, You you scream mongols, I think. That usually uh, does the trick. That's what we're trying today. Anyway, um, we've got the very lovely Nick Morton. Um, who's in with us today and he is well he's got a book out a mongol storm making and breaking empires in the medieval near east i mean he himself is a clearly, a clearly a historian but senior lecturer at nottingham trent university and he's written all sorts on the crusader states and teutonic knights and things and so i'm dipping into my medieval to total war gaming knowledge for, <laughs> for this one um how are you nicky
4: well I'm very well. Thank you for having me on the show.
2: Yeah, this just screams uh, violence and gratuitous violence and um, cool stuff, doesn't it? This title. <laughs> so I guess let, let's be sensible about it, though, because it obviously is backed up by actual history, which we need to teach people. So set the scene for us. What what constitutes the Near East prior to 1218? And what does it look like?
4: OK, so in 1218, the Near East is a bit of a jigsaw puzzle of various different powers. One of the most important is called the Ayyubid Empire and the easiest way of introducing that empire is that's the empire Saladin set up and it encompasses Egypt and much of Syria and so that sits at the centre of, sort of the arena we're looking at here. And then along the coast of the Eastern Med you've got the Crusader States which were set up by the First Crusade You've got what's left of the Byzantine Empire after it was torn apart by the Fourth Crusade to the northwest. And then the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate in what today would be sort of central Turkey, as well as various other smaller powers. So what we're looking at here is this ecosystem of different states. Some states are Muslim. Some states are uh, Catholic Christian. Some are Orthodox Christian a real diverse assortment of different states and peoples and how they react when suddenly they face catastrophic and immediate overthrow. Right. Well, let's dip
3: into the Mongols in the kind of early days of, of, of their attacks. Um, I've got an incredibly long word to try and pronounce here and one that I'm not an expert. I'm going to go with Khwarazmiani.
4: Uh, Kazan, um, I mean,
3: yes. Yeah, is, I, this is the first nation to fall to the Mongols. Um, I'm, I'm led to believe. So, what, what's, what's, what caused them to attack? What caused the Mongols uh, to to get aggressive? And how did this war pan out? Sure.
4: Well, in the early years of the 13th century, the Mongols are growing in power in Central Asia, conquering various neighboring territories, invading much of northern China, as well as various other civilizations. Uh, the conquest of the Khwarazmian Empire begins in 1218. And this, this conquest is the first in a series of conquests the Mongols will have in the Near Eastern region, or which at least give them access to the Near Eastern region. And it starts when the Mongols send a trading caravan to the border town of Utra. Now, the local um, commander of the Khwarazmian Empire then arrests these merchants and then receives orders to kill all of them. Now, we're not quite sure why, because it seems like a pretty dangerous thing to do to so sort of voluntarily provoke the Mongols. Perhaps he thought they were spying. We're not quite sure. But there is one survivor from that massacre who then makes it back to Chinggis Khan. And then within a few months, the main Mongol field army turns up. And this is the beginning of the fall of the Khwarasbian Empire, which will begin the uh, incursions into the Near East in later years.
3: What, what sort of modern countries are we talking about with these? Uh, Qura- is it still kind of Mongolia and Ch- kind of China or is it further so, for the West?
4: Yeah, So in the Mongol Empire on the eve of the conquest of the khwarazmian Empire encompassed much of what's today been Mongolia, much of northern um, China, parts of sort of the Stans of Central Asia. But then the invasion of the Khwarazmian Empire meant that areas like modern day Iran, parts of Iraq, that's the kind of area we're talking about, which the Mongols conquered during that invasion, which began in 1218, before they began to move west with subsequent invasions.
2: So let's just go history hack full on from the very beginning and go off the questions, because it's what we do best. What does it look like on the ground if you are part of the Khwar- Khwarazmian? empire and you're happily going about your business and the mongols show up what does it look like it's
4: it's not it's not it's not an easy time to be alive um the way the the way the mongols operate is um they're all mounted so it's a mounted army and they move very fast they don't have wagon trains and logistics in quite the same way as other agricultural based armies they do have huge wagon cities, but their armies can operate independently. So they can cover huge distances very, very quickly, which means that when they raid and raid deep, they can turn up almost anywhere, which causes a great deal of dislocation and it inhibits communications across, across the Khwarezmian empire. But then as things develop and get, um, as the Mongols intensify their incursions; they begin to besiege the big frontier cities of the Khwarasmian Empire. And the way they do it, I mean, the Mongols are very good at siege warfare, largely because whenever they invade a civilization, they're very attentive to what's good about the military machine of that civilization. So they pick up a lot of siege techniques and indeed siege engineers from northern China, and then they apply what they've learned to the conquest of the Khwarasmian Empire. But once they've taken one city, What they typically do is to gather together large numbers of able-bodied people from that city and then to send them forward in the first wave of attack against the next city. So that first wave then absorbs the arrows and catapult ammunition of the defenders. And when that's exhausted, the Mongols send in their main troops. And so they're they're very, very effective in what they do. The people who tended to get spared both in the Khwarazmian Empire and elsewhere, were often artisans. The Mongols like highly trained and highly skilled people. They're interested in trade, and so they know that they've got to acquire trade goods. So the key thing to do, to if you're going to survive in the Khwarazmian Empire at the time of the Mongol invasions, is to make it very clear, very quickly, that you are a very, very specialised and effective artisan who can be of service to the Mongol Empire. That might save you. Whether it'll save your family, well that's an entirely different question.
2: But I love that they're this brutal, yet that if if you're Arty and you can make something that someone else can't, that they can sell, then that's the path to sort of safety in all this mayhem.
4: It can be a part it can indeed be a path to safety. Religious leaders also get spared frequently. And that's from a wide range of religions. The idea being that the Mongols believe all religious re- leaders, whatever religion they're from, should pray for the greater glory and victory of the Mongol Empire. So they typically get either spared or at least preferential treatment. But it has to be said, I mean, the Mongols aren't, they don't just sack every city they come across. Um, In many cases, they follow the rough rule of thumb when it comes to besieging cities that's practiced by many civilizations, which is if you resist, then there's a very good chance you're going to get sacked. If you surrender early, you might be spared. But certainly if um, there was one siege, for example, where a Mongol army uh, was besieging a stronghold and one of Chinggis Khan's actual family members was killed during the siege. In the wake of that, the instructions were sent out that not only everyone, but everything should be killed in the local area, not just people, but birds, animals, the lot, all life in that area to make the point. Because the mentality that the Mongols were working with is that they believed they had a mandate to rule the entire planet.
2: It's brutal, but there's a thought process. I don't know if in my head, having not thought much about the Mongols, if I'm honest, being a First World War historian, Lockie, I just thought they were just brutal and mad and went on a rampage, but there's a thought process.
3: Yeah, no, it, it does make sense. And I, I think about kind of other medieval armies that would sort of march around. I mean, you've been working on some Agincourt stuff recently. And generally speaking, if Henry's passing through with an army. He'd... The, the locals would come out with bread and wine and if they did that then you'd be sort of easy passage and if there's any trouble then the trouble gets visited on the locals very much so I guess there's things in common um there with armies on the move just the mongols would do it faster and over much bigger distances than henry might it seems
4: and the key thing I think is to um be thinking not about the city that you're besieging but the next city you want to provide a very strong incentive at is you not to put up any resistance. And so if you show what the consequences of resistance are against the consequences of a very quick surrender, then you build that case. And this this can happen on a kingdom wide level. So. When um, the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate, that's in sort of central and eastern Turkey, as it would be today, when that fell to the Mongols, the kingdom of Silesian Armenia, an Armenian Christian kingdom, actually went out to the Mongols in order to submit. They could see that they weren't going to be able to resist the Mongols. So they thought, let's let's submit really early before we've even been attacked. And the Mongols saw that as being a very good thing. And so the Armenians actually got preferential treatment for a time because They had seen the wisdom that the Mongols do have this right to the entire planet. They do have the right to rule the world. And because they have at least paid lip service to that belief, they get a preferential treatment where others don't. So there are survival strategies here. It's not the case that sort of everyone's going to get massacred. It's how you plot your course through the unfolding events of the time.
2: It's fascinating. What about? So
3: Western nations then, and, and Crusaders. we are getting into you know areas of, of Turkey and, and the Levant then that, that have met Crusaders? Um, yeah. What what was the effect on on them as they got through?
4: Okay, so after the first Mongol incursions in sort of 1218, 1220, news begins to arrive in sort of coastal regions of the East Mediterranean, Egypt, that something big is going going on. Somewhere out to the east. And most civilizations are aware of that. In many cases, they're not quite sure what's going on, but it's clear that something big is happening. Um, at this time there's actually a big crusade underway in Egypt called the Fifth Crusade. And they believe that these reports of great wars happening somewhere in the distant um in the dis- on the distant horizon that these are reports of the advance of Prester John. Now, this is a longstanding myth in Western Christendom, that somewhere in the Indies, as they would put it, is a Christian king called Prester John, who rules over an empire of monsters, and that one day he will lead his kingdom and its forces to defend and protect Christendom. And the Fifth Crusade takes this very seriously. To such an extent, it may actually have caused them to pause their military operations in the hope that they could then coordinate their actions with those of Prester John as he advances. Now, it didn't take too long for them to find out that, in fact, this was very much not Prester John, later missed <laughs> Let later myths sort of, they the way they interpreted this later on is to think, well, perhaps the Mongols killed Prester John or they forced him into subjugation or something. But for the time being, that's what they believe. It does affect the course of that crusade.
2: It's mental. It sounds like a Netflix series, if I'm honest.
4: <laughs> well, I'm very open to offers. <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> what kind of monsters are we talking about? What, what, what was Mon- Prester John commanding here?
4: There's various, various different ideas about that. Um, depends what, I mean, the myth, the mythology of Prester John is very long lived. Um, in fact, it goes right the way through, I think I'm right in saying to the 18th century, where people are still saying, you know, maybe one day we'll find Prester John. Some people place his, his kingdom or empire in uh, Asia. Some people place later on in Africa. Of course, ultimately no one finds it because it doesn't exist. But that myth p- persists and in some ways i think it's it's a little bit like that human tendency to sort of start to conjure up ideas in the unknown i suppose that viewing things from a western european perspective at this time they know so little about what's in the wider part of the world that you know the imagination runs freely here be dragons or perhaps more precisely here be pressed to john
2: that's mad i love it and. Um right so we talked a bit about their tactics and like on the ground why they're so successful but strategically as well why are the mongols so successful at literally like enforcing this idea of theirs that they should be in charge of the whole planet
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
0: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Sure, um, I mean, part part of the answer is, is is tied up in the question. They do feel they have a mandate to rule the entire planet, and that sense of in, that sense of. Um that it has been gifted to them, they have a right to this, is in itself a major incentive for what they do. And of course, with every civilization that falls to their armies, the more they feel that that they are absolutely right in that conviction. But there's a lot more to it than that. I think one of the most amazing sites of Mongol civilization, which it must have been truly amazing, is their cities. Because these are not normally Walled cities with timber or or stone um, fixed houses. They have a capital at Karakorum, which is a sort of fairly smallish city. But the the, the panorama of Mond- of Mongol civilization is their wagon cities, and these move. So it coming coming up behind the Mongol armies are thousands and thousands of wagons.
2: I'm just going to go there and say this is the Dothraki in Game of Thrones, isn't it? <laughs> Did you get excited watching that, thinking they're Mongols, they're Mongols?
4: <laughs> but it's, 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 it's on a much bigger scale. I mean, literally, there are, there are reports of travellers going for days across the Mongol encampments without reaching the end. And then around their margins, there are flocks and herds. And then as the Mongols get richer and more powerful, you should imagine the tents getting so big that they can hold thousands of people. But you you really can let your imagination run wild with this. And the tents are often in silk or expensive textiles because, well, the Mongols have conquered all these civilizations. They can afford whatever is being sold. And so these are huge luxury tent, um, tent encampments and they cover the entire landscape. Now, this would have been an amazing panorama at the time, but it's also a very powerful weapon of conquest, because, of course, they can move these cities straight onto territories they've conquered. So it's not, as you say, it's not just the fact that the Mongol armies are so effective, but they can move in very quickly. And once they do, of course, those cities become the central point for taxes and ambassadors and all the infrastructure of the Mongol state. There is a limitation to, to this form of conquest, though, which is that it's very, very dependent on pasture land. Mongol society needs very, very, very large areas of good quality grazing. Now, the Near East can offer that, um, particularly in what today would be the Caucasus or southern Anatolia. That's sort of southern modern day Turkey. You go further south. pasture land becomes a little bit more sparse. And so this is one of the problems the Mongols encountered on many frontiers, which is. How do you conquer territory where you can't graze your animals? So where they encounter desert or where they encounter tropical rainforest or in the case of Western Christendom, where they encounter thick, deciduous forest, it's actually a lot harder for them to carry forward their um, designs of world conquest.
3: That's a really interesting thought, isn't it? The idea of almost like a natural barrier to, or a series of natural barriers to, to Mongol progress. Um Okay, oh, log- logical enough, I guess. I mean, what, what other, are you, with, with an empire so vast, you, I, I now I'm, I'm sort of thinking about maybe like Alexander or something like that. It's got to be quite difficult for, for, you know, that to be maintained. Um, and so were there any kind of fissures or fractures that developed in the Mongol
4: empire? Sure. I mean, just to take the first point, people become so aware of the Mongols' need for grazing. You've actually got some empires that deliberately burn pasture land, just acre after acre of land burning it all just to prevent the Mongols from being able to move into that area. And you've even got tree planting in some areas, again, because it's easier to graze animals on grassland and forest. But you're, you're right. The empire becomes vast. I mean, at its greatest extent, It stretches from the Pacific Ocean all the way across um, Asia to the borders of the Kingdom of Poland and Hungary, sort of facing Western Christendom, Western Europe, or indeed in the Near East um, to the River Euphrates. So it's vast. And the Mongols do try and coordinate it all. They've got something called the fast horse system, which basically means that on the major roads, they've got outposts with fast horses and the idea is that at every sort of 20, 30, 40 kilometres, a messenger would reach the first of these outposts, hand the message over to the next rider, who would then gallop full tilt to the next one, and so on and so forth. And so a message could cover several hundred kilometres a day because it's const- the horses are constantly being changed. But you're right, it is very hard to, to rule an area that big. And so what happens is the leading... Mongol families, they take control of areas that they claim for their jurisdiction called Ulu. And the problem comes when these families begin to dispute which areas fall within their jurisdiction as opposed to other families' jurisdictions. And the Near East becomes very, very contested between different families who say, well, actually, we have the right to the Near East and therefore its revenues, its troops and all the rest of it. And other, other families say, no, this, that's our area and you're not having it. And this is the beginning of what in time will be the breakup of the Mongol Empire as these families get so powerful and their rivalries become so intense that actually the empire ceases to work as a single entity, becoming instead a series, a series of different Mongol empires in China, the Near East, and then across much of, sort of central Eurasia.
2: got to ask as well so that we can now look back obviously in hindsight and see that the cracks are starting to form but they've not stopped have they they're still on the rampage so 1252 i'm probably going to butcher his name khan monka is that mm-hmm. right yeah unleashes a fresh wave against china in the near east is this a sweeping victory
4: okay so i mean the, the area i'm most concerned with this is is his campaigns in the near east although china yep. does fall fairly soon afterwards yeah um, but even that campaign. It's a sign of those internal conflicts because the campaign's unleashed in 1252, but it doesn't actually start until 1256. And the reason there's a four year gap is because the leader of that army called Hulagu, actually waits for four years for the death of a rival leader from a rival family who also claims the Near East. He waits for him to die, then when he's died. Then he advances because he doesn't feel threatened by him anymore. So it all plays out. But it's it's during this invasion that really the Mongols conquer what's left of the independent powers across much of the Near East, including the enormous loss of life when the Mongols besiege and conquer Baghdad in 1258, Hulagu. Um, claims in a letter to the King of France that he's killed 200,000 people within the walls. Now, whether it's quite that large, we don't know, but certainly the loss of life would have been enormous. But yes, this is really when the Mongols take every scrap of land that's left east of the Euphrates. And so this is a high water mark as far as the Mongol conquests are concerned. But it's followed soon afterwards by a, a dramatic defeat for the Mongols, which in time proves to be, Very significant for them. But the background to this is that even as the Mongols expand their conquests, their rivalries intensify. And so one of the reasons why the Mongols external wars of conquest conquest stop is because they actually start to make war with each other in the 1260s rather than making war against powers around their periphery. And so Western Europe was about to get invaded in twelve sixty. Mongols had all the Mongols had all their troops in place, but because that civil war broke out, that invasion didn't take place. And it's because they're turning in on themselves, and that's crucial for stopping the Mongols' outward wars of invasion.
3: There was something you said there that, that, that sort of interested me for a letter to the King of France. I mean, so how does diplomacy work around this? So I guess it's it's a bit like kind of you're thinking about the next city ahead, aren't you? Maybe, maybe um, Hulagu's thinking about the, the next empire uh, ahead, even. I've killed these 200,000 people. You you guys are going to want to surrender. Um, but is that
4: pretty much how Mongol diplomacy works? Mongol diplomacy initially is very, very simple. You've got two choices. You can submit to the Mongol Empire. Recognize the Mongol right to control the planet and pay tribute and possibly accept a, a Mongol garrison. Option one. Or you'll be invaded and the consequent and things will not go well for you. And that is that is the choice. It's very, very simple and is repeated time and time again. Not just to Western Europe, but to all powers within reach of the Mongol Empire as things as things develop and as the Mongol Empire turns on itself that starts to get a little bit more complicated because the Mongols realise that actually they need friends now where before they could conquer things purely on their own so conquer neighbouring powers simply on their own strength now they need allies because they're fighting amongst themselves and, and their diplomacy becomes a little bit more nuanced they're looking for allies they're looking for partners they're looking for trading partners but initially it's very simplistic Um, but the the first power to really... There are various powers that are able to defeat the Mongols as a one-off, but the first power that manages to defeat the Mongols repeatedly, they respond dramatically to one of these demands for submission. And this is the Mamluk Empire of Egypt. And when the Mongols send their envoys to the Mamluks, the Mamluks send a very clear message, which is to kill one of the envoys, shave the beards from the other, a colossal insult mm. and then send them back so that they can tell their masters that the mamluks aren't going anywhere and this is the background to what will become a string of defeats for them was the first really big series of defeats that they encounter
2: I love it yeah it's it's so interesting just, it's just like the bigger they get the more they have to adapt and they're not coping very well with it which is uh, it's a really interesting facet of it we talked about trade and how they are really interested in their trade um and are really pragmatic with regard to like obviously not slaughtering all the people that would make them things they could trade but what about things like scientific patronage what is this like during this period the mongols
4: are very interested in all of these things um and there's in in the near east they have a place called moraga where they build well i suppose today we'd call it a scientific research institute. But what they do is that when they conquer a civilization or a city, they single out the intellectuals. They want the intellectuals. And then they send them to Moraga. And so in Moraga, you've got intellectuals from places as far afield as Damascus, the Caucasus, China, and they're all brought together. And they're told, right, you need to start inventing stuff for the Mongol Empire. And so the Mongols are particularly interested in anyone who can solve alchemy. But of course, that doesn't work out because you can't. But even so, bringing together all these deeply intelligent people and giving them that space to research, there are significant scientific breakthroughs that take place at Maraga. And so, for example, a chunk of what we know about trigonometry is devised there under Mongol patronage. So it is extraordinary, but also there's a, a broader sort of technological innovation background to this, which is that the establishment of this vast empire means that suddenly it is possible, at least some, for some time periods, to go to one end of the empire and buy goods from the other end, which means that technologies that had previously been simply too far away for people to actually make use of are now accessible. Now, the big question mark here is gunpowder. Now, it's not clear if the Muslim world had gunpowder in advance of the Mongol invasions, but certainly once the Mongol invasions happened, gunpowder spreads very, very rapidly across many civilizations in the Mediterranean. And the most likely scenario is the Mongol merchants brought brought it with them, because of course the Chinese had very advanced gunpowder, but before it hadn't really been. Traded much outside China, but with China under Mongol control, suddenly it can be. And this is just one of a many of a whole range of examples of technologies, ideas, or architectural techniques that are suddenly getting shared across vast distances. So there is a big technological development, or a whole series of technological developments that take place during this era, which makes it unbelievably fascinating.
3: It all seems very fast-moving, doesn't it, from 1218 through to the 1240s and things are sort of starting to fray a little bit. It does seem to happen quite quickly um, for them. Um, the 1270s to the 1280s, um, war gets a bit tougher for them. Is that is that maybe part of – maybe they're victims of their own success and – um things like the distribution of gunpowder becoming more widespread or or maybe the tactics are becoming a little bit tired or, or predictable what's um what what what's their what are their difficulties at this stage
4: sure so by the by the sort of 1260s among the two key mongol empires on their western borders and they're called the ilkhanate in the near east and the golden horde or just the horde in western eurasia They're fighting amongst themselves. So where previously all their forces were devoted to external expansion. Now, the vast majority of their forces are watching each other in the Caucasus and not expanding. But also, however big the Mongol armies may have been, and however many people may have moved with the Mongol armies in order to enforce Mongol conquest, the Mongols themselves are only a small ruling elite over a much, much broader area. And so once it becomes clear that the Mongols are fighting amongst themselves, and also when they start to get defeated, that starts to change the equation, because in my, from what I've seen looking at historical examples, rebellions don't happen simply because someone wants to resist a powerful overlord. Rebellions happen once rebellion is, is possible. Once it is plausible, that rebellion could actually succeed. No one wants to rebel against someone who's simply going to squash them. But once rebellion becomes possible, then people start to look for ways to resist. And that happens in the 1260s. Another factor in this is the Mamluk Empire, which I've mentioned already, because in 1260, they score a big military victory over the Mongols. Now, it's not over the Mongols main field army, but it's over a large Mongol garrison. But the Mongols take 20 years to respond to that defeat because they're too busy fighting amongst themselves by and large. And the Mamluks score another victory over them in 1277. And when the Mongols do eventually re-invade the Mamluk Empire, crossing the Euphrates, moving into Syria um, towards Damascus, the Mamluks defeat them again. As the Mongols suddenly start to find they're being consistently defeated by the Mamluk Empire, and that starts to turn the engine of conquest the other way. People begin to see actually, they can resist the Mongols displaced people begin to congregate around the Mamluks because the Mamluks have proved they can actually offer meaningful resistance and so this is where the equation starts to sort of hang in the balance a lot more what was what was the recipe
3: for success for the Mamluks then from a from a a fighting point of view What, what what did they do differently
4: sure um mixture of things the first is they've made it perfectly clear that they're not going anywhere so when you kill a Mongol envoy then there's no point anyone talking about diplomacy after that, or at least not for the time being, because the Mongols are going to invade. And if you can't resist them, they're they're, they're they're not going to leave much behind. So by making that statement, the Mamluk Sultan, called Sultan Qutuz, he was was basically forcing his army to fight. There's just no alternative. You have to fight or else that's it. It's almost like burning the boats,
3: isn't it? When you land, I suppose, it's... uh... (laughs)
4: It, it's, it's the back against the wall um, principle, really, yeah the Mamluks have another advantage. the Mamluk Empire is unusual because it was formed the Mamluk to be a Mamluk is to be a slave, and so the Mamluks were originally formed um in the in twelve fifty as the Mamluks were originally regiments of slave soldiers who were previously um controlled by the Sultan of Egypt. The Mamluks got too powerful and overthrew the Sultan taking power for themselves but they still have these regiments of Mamluk soldiers and the way the Mamluks fill their regiments of enslaved soldiers is to recruit them or to purchase them I should say from the Black Sea region and in that region there are lots of Turkic tribes who live and fight in much the same way as the Mongols so when the Mamluks purchase these enslaved people and then enroll them into their army, they're actually deploying forces that are very, very similar to the Mongols. So all the Mongol strengths in war are also the Mamluk strengths in war, which means that at the very least they can fight them on equal terms. But also their first victory over the Mongols at Ain Jaluk, when the Mamluks march out, they've got an army of maybe sort of 15,000 strong. And the Mongol army in northern Syria at that point is about 100,000 strong. So they have no chance of winning, even though they're marching against them. But the Mongols withdraw east because they've heard, heard news that the great Khan in Mongolia has died. And they have only a small garrison behind, which is about the same size as the Mamluk army. And it's that garrison the Mamluk's defeat. So it works out well for them. that They don't have to face the full strength of the Mongol army. They only have to face that garrison, and which because they have similar strengths in war to the Mongols, They've actually got a chance of beating, which they do.
2: I don't know about you. I think we should. I don't want to round off the Mongols. I want to make people buy the book and go and figure out what happens, how <laughs> it all falls apart. So we're going to be annoying and spoiler like. But let's just to wrap up. Can we return to one thing you mentioned earlier on, which was really interesting? And that was um, the religious leaders and how they didn't just like kill off anyone who didn't agree with them. Um, interfaith cooperation during the Mongol. This is not something I would have thought to credit them with.
4: Yeah so it's all it's all part of the mongols broader ideology so they believe that or believed that they had been given a mandate to rule the world by tengri and tengri is translated by some people as sort of the mongols god it seems to be more a sort of a spiritual force in the sky that orders the world and the mongols believe they have a mandate from tengri to rule the world now according to that belief system The world's other religions, whether that is Buddhism or Christianity or Islam or other religions, they're not wrong. But they have a right to acknowledge that mandate. And I think one of the ways that this was explained to an envoy from Western Christendom, which I think is quite helpful, is the Mongols compared other religions to the fingers on a hand. And so in a sense, the Mongols are making the point that all the world's religions are in their own way connected. But the way I've always interpreted that is the Mongols are really saying that the religions of the world are the fingers on a hand and the Mongols are the palm. They're the thing that connects it all together. And so the Mongols were perfectly happy to have in their entourages, religious leaders from multiple religions. They saw no contradiction in that, but they would it was deemed necessary for them to use their spiritual power, as it was understood, for the betterment and prosperity of the greater Mongol Empire and spiritual leaders that were prepared to do that, they could prosper. And of course, for all these various religious leaders, their main goal was to try, if they possibly could, to either win Mongol protection for their own faith community or even better, to try and convert a Mongol leader to their own faith. And there was a great deal of competition over trying to make that happen
2: I just uh, I don't know about you lucky. there's a level of smartness about the Mongols that I wouldn't have credited them with before this recording have you got anything else you want to chuck in yeah, I like, I like the professionalism
3: uh, of them apart from anything else. You know, they're, 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 they have their purpose and they stick to it. I'm, I have a little curiosity, I think, you know, and that's just in terms of characters. I think, you know, I, we all have our sort of favorite characters from history. And when we're thinking Mongols, uh, we think Genghis Khan and maybe Kublai Khan. Do you have any of your favorites, Nick? Uh, any other, uh, any others that we should be looking for in the book?
4: It's a good question. Um... I think the characters I find most interesting are, um, are the travellers and the, the, the various individuals, people like Ibn Battuta, who's a Muslim traveller who travels across much of uh, Eurasia and the Indian Ocean region, or Marco Polo, who um, is an Italian traveller who travels all over Eurasia and ends up serving the Mongols in China or as a Franciscan friar called William of Rubrook. And what makes them so interesting, I think, is just listening to their reflections on encountering human civilizations and indeed natural landscapes that are wholly unfamiliar to them. And so it's what they make of that and how they use the information, the ed- education the cultural training you know, the way they've been raised how they try and make sense of this entirely different environment and how they try to understand it and then explain it to the people they're writing for really and how it's it's that process of looking at something which is totally unfamiliar to you and then trying to make sense of it according to the tools with which you are equipped and i think that that's fascinating because it's that process of, of, of trying to understand something that is very different to yourself. And I've always found that to be a fascinating pro- process.
3: Yeah, trying to, trying to piece it all together from your own frames of reference, something yeah. that is so very different. It's, uh, yeah, it does make you think, doesn't it? Um, Nick, this has been really, really interesting. Please tell us, uh, where can we see more of your work or where can we, where can we find uh, more of your work?
4: Sure. Um, so if you're interested in uh, any of my books, particularly Mongol Storm, which is uh, new out, uh, that, will, that can be available. Just a quick Google search. will find it. Um, I'm also starting a new YouTube channel, um, which has resources aimed particularly at um, uh, secondary school and degree level students, which, again, you might, might you might find interesting, interested. But um, but, yeah, those are the main things, really.
3: Brilliant. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really intrigued by your other books as well on Crusaders and Teutonic Knights. Actually, yeah, they, they sound uh, excellent. Um, Nick Morton, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you very, very much indeed. And we look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Thank you so much.
4: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org